So in case you missed it, I wrote a book, <laughs> like a full-blown cover-to-back book, Confessions of a Crappy Christian. The book is real-life talk about the things Christians aren't sure they're supposed to say. It's like the podcast and my Instagram times a thousand. Inside, I dive into things like mental health, being a fiery woman from within the church, friendship breakups, and more from the perspective of my life and how God has moved. So you can find out more at crappychristianco.com slash book. Welcome back to another episode of Confessions of a Crabby Christian, a Misfit Media Network production. I am your host and resident crappy Christian, Blake, and every week I get to have the coolest conversations with incredible people about all the things most Christians are still not sure we're allowed to talk about. So if you've been looking for a place to land with all your crap and for someone to just be honest about what it looks like to walk through this Christian life, well, you've come to the right place. Pull up a seat pop in your headphones and tune out your kids and come hang out with me and a guest for the authentic conversations that you have been looking for. Valerie, welcome to Confessions of a Crappy Christian. Thank you, Blake. I'm so excited to be here. I am really looking forward to this conversation. You have an incredible story. It's almost like it could be a book. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it is. Your book, Off Script, came out in February. Congratulations. Thank you. And then you also have a history of being in communications and public affairs, and you're also a mother and an adoptive mother, and been, you've been open about your husband's struggle with alcoholism. So just there's plenty for us to talk about. So can you just, for people to kind of get to know you a little bit, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So my name is Valerie Cantella, and I live in Santa Barbara, California, which is a huge blessing and is so much a part of my life walking on the beaches. And so I'm sorry for those of you who are in hot temperatures and yep. not so feeling a little jealous today that I, I live here. But I call myself a recovering perfectionist and a multi-passionate professional. I have three children biological son, Nick, an adoptive daughter, Katie, and a bonus son by marriage. And his name is Adam. And I'm married to a wonderful man, Tom, who is in recovery. But I was also married to someone named Paul who was not in recovery when I was married to him. So that's part of my story as well. So you were married to someone that wasn't in recovery and are now married to someone who is. Yes. So I was married to an alcoholic for almost 19 years. Who got sober the day I kicked him out. And I'm so grateful that he is still sober today as mm -hmm. much as I know. And he is thriving and living his life, the new relationship. And I have this amazing relationship with my husband who is in recovery and we really live our lives to help others. So writing this book was an opportunity for me to help others whose life has gone off script the subtitle of my book is Off Script, A Mom's Journey Through Adoption, A Husband's Alcoholism, and Special Needs Parenting. So there are several layers to my story and how I can help others. Yeah, that's just reading through everything about you and your book. I was like, what direction do you, I mean, there's so many <laughs> options, What you know, because we do kind of try to have like almost like a central quote unquote theme through episodes, but that's not always the case. But one of the things that you're really 
but you're really open about is kind of the facade or how things can look from the outside versus what you're actually experiencing. I've gotten to have a lot of conversations with people both in real life and here, like from behind the mic about a lot of it is like their childhood that their parents wanted to make sure everything looked a certain way. But in reality, there was addiction or alcoholism or, you know, all of these things going on for themselves. What did that crumbling, as you put it, look like for your family? Well, it's really interesting because I really did have a fabulous, wonderful childhood. What you saw was what you got. There was no facade there. I mean, I have amazing, wonderful Christian parents. I grew up in the church and everything went well for our family and had for generations before. So I really thought that if I loved God and I loved my family and served others, that I would have this blessed life and just this fairy tale ending, so to speak. And it wasn't until I got to adulthood in my own marriage when I started realizing there wasn't a script and Mm. I started really putting on that mask of perfectionism and trying to keep everything in control and trying to appear like everything was okay, that I would go to church and feel like I was being dishonest about what was really going on. But I didn't feel like at a church, it was a place where you could say, oh, my marriage is struggling. My husband is drinking too much. My Mm -hmm. child is really having a difficult time. And so I just kept putting on that mask and that facade kept being built until, until one day it wasn't. And it's been quite an amazing journey to get to the place where I'm very comfortable with the broken pieces and the broken facade. And I can see what a beautiful mosaic God has woven my life into. And I'm so happy now to be on the other side of all the things that happened, but just, it was really rough. It's so sad because I think that that is a very common narrative that of all the places that you should be able to show up broken and incomplete and struggling is fairly often where people feel the least safe to let that guard down at at church. That place should be, it's a hospital, not a museum, you know? Absolutely. And you see all these really pretty facades that you you kind of, towards the end, start to find out, oh, like nobody's got it all together. Everybody's just really good at pretending. We're really blessed to go to a church now that isn't that way that we know like we can show up messy, we can show up hurting or struggling. And like, and I mean, like actually show up to church on Sunday and be like, everything's a disaster. And we're going to be met with love and grace and encouragement. But I would almost venture to say that the opposite is more people's experience. Yeah, I think so as well. And it's and really the opposite. Right. Yeah. Because we're the ones that have like this direct line to the only answer, right? Like we should be the ones that are like, no, show up broken, show up messy. Just don't plan to stay that way because we serve a God that's in the business of miracles and restoration and healing. Well, and if we think about who Jesus was in his character, he was sitting at the well with a woman who was an adulteress and had a storied sexual history and he treated her better than he treated the Pharisees and the people that were criticizing him. And so it's really opened my eyes as an adult to realizing that 
we need to be in the places where people are hurting and how do we serve people that way and be honest about sharing our stories where it's appropriate so that mm-hmm. we can help others find that hope. And in your story, I mean, just going even back to when you were a kid, you're diagnosed with diabetes, you have kidney disease, your senior year of college, you have, I think, multiple miscarriages, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's, that's early life we're talking about. We haven't even gotten into motherhood and marriage. As someone who, you know, you grew up in the church and you, you had your own faith early, what was the impact of those things kind of on your life and on your relationship with God? Did it change how you saw things? Yeah, it's interesting because I don't know that those things necessarily really created a huge impact because I felt like, oh, God gives everybody one or two things Mm -hmm. to deal with because he needs to show that he can help heal us or not necessarily physically, but that he can heal those wounds. But when I was around 10, uh, there was a man in our church that stole money from the church and my dad was in the leadership and they used the biblical model and went to him and gave him the opportunity to confess to the church. And he didn't, and he passed away from a heart attack within a couple months. And that really stuck with me that if you did not follow God and you weren't perfect, Mm -hmm. if you sinned and you didn't acknowledge it, you could die. And it it felt very serious. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the opposite of the loving Jesus, but that there was consequences for bad behavior. And I think that along with being a type one diabetic really created a perfectionist or helped the perfectionist part of me blossom because I thought, okay, God is a judgmental God, but Mm -hmm. God is also wants people to be perfect. We somehow I got that message. And so I really struggled with perfectionism. And then when I got the diabetic kidney disease in college, to me, that was kind of like the marker of, okay, Valerie, you, you weren't perfect enough. Your blood sugars should have been better because you Mm -hmm. could have prevented this disease. But then God healed my kidneys. It was a miracle. They, they can't really explain why my kidneys, uh, why I didn't end up having a kidney transplant and then was able to have a baby. So, you know, I've seen these different miracles in my life. But yeah, it really wasn't until I was an adult struggling with my daughter, my special needs daughter, and then my alcoholic husband that I really struggled and wrestled with God over why are you giving this to Mm. me and have I not been perfect enough? What's interesting, I'm just kind of like making this correlation. I wonder if your earliest experiences with the presentation of God Mm -hmm. shape our little personalities because my husband is a perfectionist who the like T and he became a Christian because of the left behind series. Oh, fire, brimstone, you know, tribulation, that kind of stuff. Um, Essentially. And he'll say was like scared into faith and obviously doesn't, he doesn't function that way now as an adult. But that's essentially what got him to like church into a relationship with Christ. And I'm wondering if there's like, like, if you think about it, it makes sense. If your impression of who God is, is I have to do this perfectly or God's going to like smite me. Right. That just breeds this. Like we're already such like fertile ground for perfectionism just as humans. 
And I think that that just like sows these seeds of like, yeah, you're right. You do have to do it all right. Or you're worthless or you're nothing, or you're going to be cast out. Yeah. It's such an interesting, I mean, just the different parts of God and his character and Jesus and how that is taught to us and how we read it and interpret it and then live it is, you know, it's such a mystery and something that really takes a lot of years to unpack and understand. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're, I think we're still in the the business of doing that well into our, you know, more developed relationships with God. So you have, that's kind of your like early years. Can you kind of give us like a, like a timeline? Like, okay, you get married, you have two miscarriages, you get pregnant with Nick. Yeah. So at 27, I get pregnant with Nick and he is born perfectly healthy, amazing baby boy. My husband and I decide that we're going to try to adopt a daughter from Russia because his family's Russian. And because of my kidney disease, we thought that I was not going to be able to have a baby. And so we thought we would adopt. So we embark on this Russian adoption process, which takes a while, but then we go to Russia to Vladivostok, which is the far east, and it's like a third world country. And we go to meet this baby who we called Catherine or Katie, and she is 15 pounds at 16 months, severely malnourished, mm-hmm. hardly crawls, really doesn't make sounds, super fragile. And we are going to go through with the process because we believe God will not get us more than we can handle. But we also believe that God has a plan for our family and she is it. But there was honestly no bonding there. We did not feel connected to her at all. We fly home, have to do some more paperwork, and then we fly back to adopt her three weeks later. So mm-hmm. our family's first family experience was lighting the Advent candle um, on Christmas Eve at our church. We flew in on December 23rd. Oh, wow. And the family that was supposed to light the candle didn't show up and they asked us to do it. And it just felt like, I felt like the angels were singing and my family was complete, my family of four, and now life could really start. But what that really started was this journey of surrender that I was not in control because Mm -hmm. this baby was severely malnourished and sick. And within two months, we knew that we needed lots of different therapy for her, speech therapy, occupational therapy. She had a swallowing disorder. Mm -hmm. and. Over the years, over the next, you know, 10 years, the diagnosis start rolling in. She's got reactive attachment disorder, which is a disorder where kids can't attach to you appropriately because they've never had a secure attachment. Mm. So we were her fourth placement because of the baby hospitals that she had been in and then the orphanage and then to our house. And there was probably her mom probably drank and smoked and did drugs and we didn't really know that before we adopted her. And so life is feeling really out of control for me because these are not things that I anticipated. We'd said, oh, we'll take a baby with a correctable medical condition, but autism and reactive attachment disorder and bipolar and ADHD and all Mm. these diagnoses that she eventually has are not things that you can correct. And being the perfectionist in control and wanting to look good and show up at work and church and on the PTA looking like I had it together. That was not part of my narrative. And so most people knew that Katie had 
problems. And we were very open about that. Just that, you know, we were struggling. She was a special needs kid. Yeah. And, but then there was the layer of my husband was drinking most days and he'd come home and he'd fall asleep on the couch and was not able to be engaged because he worked really hard. He was really good at his job. But when he was at home, he was not coping yeah. well. Yeah. And so my parents think I'm so grateful for them. They lived about five miles from us and were so helpful with my kids and particularly with Katie. But they had no idea that my husband was an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was really hard because there was a part of my life that I could be open and authentic about, but there was another part, a huge part that I was not sharing. Were, and were you, did you feel like you could be fully open and authentic about like things with Katie or were you still kind of trying to like still kind of almost image manage that as well? Totally image manage that as well, because she would be, she would perform at school. And a lot of times the school psychologist actually said, yeah, they perform at school. They hold it together because that's all they know how to do. And when they get home, they just lose it. Yeah. And you're the safest place they have. And so my relationship with Katie was so difficult because of this reactive attachment, because I'm the primary caregiver that she's not attached to. So she could walk up to you the first time she met you and say, oh, I love you. And for me, there's no connection and no sense of love. And I couldn't say it until much later, but I felt like I was on the babysitting journey from hell yeah. because this was not the adoption process I had envisioned. And I was very close with my son, Nick, and loved being his mom and taking him to to look at animals and tractors and the right. skate park and all those things that we do as moms. And yet this relationship with Katie was so unfulfilling. And I didn't even feel like I was helping her make progress because it felt more like the diagnoses just kept coming as opposed to getting closer to helping her live a stable, functional life. Okay, so you guys know I'm all about talking about the things that make us uncomfortable. So let's talk about female hair loss. Millions of Americans experience thinning hair. It's more than common, it's normal. But it's not openly talked about, especially amongst women. And going through this can feel so lonely and frustrating. So it's time to change the conversation and join the thousands of women who are standing up for their hair with Nutrafol. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement, and it supports healthy hair growth with three unique formulas for women in all stages of life, including postpartum and menopause. Each formula uses natural, drug-free, medical-grade ingredients for the most reliable results. And if you're more of the statistics type, 86% of women reported improved hair growth after six months and 3,000 plus top doctors and stylists recommend Nutrafol. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support my show by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code Blake to save $15 off your first month's subscription. This is their best offer anywhere and it's only available to US customers for a limited time. Get free shipping on every order and $15 off at Nutrafol.com 
spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code Blake. I'm super excited to announce that this August, we are firing back up our monthly membership called The Collective. The Collective is a community membership empowering you to navigate real life from a biblical perspective. I love this community and the up-close access it gives us to one another. We cover a quarterly topic with monthly calls and we all grow and learn together and it's just really awesome. You can learn more and get on the wait list at crappychristianco.com slash collective. Right. Well, and that's motherhood is so heavy and hard and wonderful and sacrificial and like all of those things. But there's this payoff right. to a degree, right? The snuggles and the drawings and the I love you's and the, you know, and so I, to be honest, I've never heard of this disorder like titled, but have heard of children that responded that way to like caregivers and it's like you only get the hard stuff right right without the the snuggles and the kisses and the you know what i mean that that, re- that stuff redeems the hard stuff and you weren't getting that and then on the flip side aren't even being supported by your husband like he's tapped out you're almost probably like feel like you have a third kid with him yeah it was interesting because we were just i describe it as we were parallel trains on track, two different tracks. Like he was making the the money that really kept our family. I never felt financially insecure because I knew he was really good at his job. And we were the only two people that knew how difficult parenting Katie was. I mean, she would be the screaming, the banging her head. There are some behaviors that she would do that were very consistent of children and orphanages because Mm -hmm. they don't get attention. Mm -hmm. But then she would have marks on her body because she would bang her head against her car seat and it would rub the car. And so she'd get this mark and, you know, it was, we're not abusing her. It's just doing these behaviors because they're self-soothing. And so that part was really difficult. And later on in the story, when she was in junior high and she really started having her mental health breakdowns and she had to go live with my parents for a couple weeks. They came to us after that and said, will you please forgive us? Because we had no idea. We thought Mm. you were just making it more than it was. And now we understand the chaos and the difficulty of having this. Hades was like a black cloud Mm -hmm. over our family. And that was very, I felt so grateful that they finally understood that we weren't making this up and we weren't trying to complain, but that it was really hard. And because people saw only the best parts of Katie, the cute, and she was silly and funny. And if you saw her, you would think she's a quote unquote normal kid, Mm -hmm. but she's very quirky. But when you live with her and you go through the variety of emotions with her, it's really difficult. Yeah. Well, and there's something about being seen in the midst of chaos that you feel like you're drowning in, that it's almost like a life preserver. So many people just need to be seen and recognize, like, I just need you to see me and recognize that this is hard. I don't even necessarily need you to fix it. Like, it's so great that you had parents who were involved enough that Katie was able to go stay with them. But it, it, it sounds like, and I know from my own experience, just having them say, oh, okay, yeah, 
we see it and I don't know how you've been doing this. There's so much like relief almost found in that grace being extended when you're, when you're drowning like that. Definitely so much healing for me because I felt like I was living these two different lives on the outside. The facade looks great. And then Katie ran away and started going through her mental health crises. And then we end up having to put her in out of state residential treatment for four years during high school. And I described that as the beginning of the crumbling of the facade, but it just crumbled from there as when I ended up kicking my husband out because of his alcoholism. And, but even I couldn't, I couldn't even come to the point where I could use the word alcoholic or even consider it until 18 years into our marriage because I was so focused on dealing with the Katie situation. I mean, it was so hard and I was so filled with fear about even thinking about, could my husband be an alcoholic? And there was like, you didn't have the capacity. Yeah. And where do you go to say, I think my husband is an alcoholic because definitely in my church group and my friends, I didn't know anyone that was an alcoholic and Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to ask the question. And I didn't want people to think badly of my husband. Right. But now I know if he had cancer, people would have come around us and supported us. Right. And I know because of my remarriage to someone in recovery that alcoholism is a disease and we can help and support people through that process just like we can with cancer. Outside of, you know, we've already talked about your parents just kind of stepping in and then also recognizing what you were going through. How did people support you? I mean, this is a really... This is like, there's, there's gotta be a word more than challenging. Cause this is like, we have passed the challenging threshold talking about these things that you're shouldering essentially alone. Like how did people love you and support you? Well, it was interesting because with Katie's situation, once I started a blog after she had run away, which was kind of our red flag that her mental health issues had gotten so bad that we really needed inpatient 24 Mm seven residential support for her. And people were so gracious. And we had a huge prayer chain, prayer warriors, just praying for God to open up things with the insurance companies and the school districts. Mm -hmm. And there are some amazing miracles in my story. I'm so grateful for, and I was just the willing person to communicate or write or do the work. But then when the day I kicked my husband out was a good Friday Mm. and I was thinking about this this morning, just the timing of that. And so on Saturday, I went over to my parents' house and I had to tell them what was Mm -hmm. going on. And they had no idea that my husband was an alcoholic and no idea. I might get choked up here. It's okay. At how, like you said, the burden that I had been shouldering and they were so sad that that I didn't feel like I could share that with them and I didn't feel supported. And my parents were so supportive for what I would reveal to them. But right. my people had said to me, oh, I wish I would have known. I should have supported you more. But I said, I was the one exactly. trying to appear perfect and like I had it together. I didn't let you in. And so I think that concept of Good Friday and Saturday is interesting because John Piper, this I'm going to digress for a second, but John Piper writes about the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter and how the Christians were so devastated on Good Friday, their savior had been killed. And then 
on Saturday, they didn't know what was coming on Sunday. And I feel like I lived in that Saturday mm. period for so many years that I just didn't know, is Katie going to be okay? How am I going to get through life after this separation and then divorce? And I had an amazing small group at church. They were people that I was really honest with. Yeah. I mean, actually, Paul, my first husband, emailed them and said, I'm an alcoholic and this is what I'm doing about it. And they really came around me and supported me. He decided not to continue on with that small group. Obviously, it would have been really awkward. Yeah. But we, so Katie's out of state and one of us was going to see her every six weeks. So she happened to be in Missouri at that time. But we would go to parent retreats together and Mm -hmm. we would co-parent. And then an interesting part of the story was that he eventually came out as being gay. And that's another layer of how does the church support you through that? And it was awkward because people would say, did you know? And it's like, well, of course I didn't know Would I have married this guy if I thought he was gay. But again, I never even uttered those words like, at the point at which I would have questions like, right. My husband might be. Right. So yeah, I live a very modern family life. And uh, (laughs) yeah, you do. No, I was just going to say, I think you touched on something really important that people couldn't support you if you wouldn't let them. Yeah. I will admit that I can be like the queen of that, of I am drowning and I won't tell anybody whether it's because you don't want to be a burden. You're too prideful. Like there's a whole bunch of reasons that people do that. But what I've had to learn is that I am robbing the people who love me of the opportunity of loving me well when Mm -hmm. I do that, because I hate it when my friends are struggling, but I love the opportunity to show up for them, to remind them how loved and cherished and special they are, and that I love having them in my life and that I love showing up for these things. And so like, if I love doing that for other people, what makes me think that like I am either too good or not worthy, depending on which end of the spectrum you fall on, of letting people do that for me. Absolutely. And I know in my darkest days, people wouldn't tell me things Mm. because they were thinking, oh, your stuff is so much worse than mine. And Jen Hatmaker has a a phrase, this isn't the comparison Olympics, which I absolutely love that. But I also would encourage you if you're going through something, but you have a friend that's going through something that you categorize as worse. If it's a truly good friend and someone you love, go ahead and tell them. I was so happy when someone else would tell me something so I could pray for them and be concerned and pour into someone else because I am not a good, I don't like to be the one that is being poured. I mean, I love being poured into, but I don't want to be the one that's struggling. Right. And so it was a gift to me when people would let me in and I could focus on something else that I felt like I could give input in or I was better at, or, I mean, I felt so incompetent in motherhood. I feel like (laughs) I did not do this well. And so I was happy to go to my job where I was very good at my job and I knew what to do and I could check the boxes. Motherhood is this kind of, it's like slime, you know, it's just unshapely and hard to control and it's fun to be and it's and you don't get a report card and nobody tells you you're doing a good job and it is. And that's, that's like motherhood. 
that's not adding in mental health. That's not adding in special needs. It's not adding in your marriage struggling. And like a lot of people, maybe not all of them, but have those like compounding parts and facets of life and of motherhood. And so I think that the encouragement is, is that if you, that's where you are, like you were not created to do this as an island. Right. That, that well, makes things worse. It totally does. And I, it's, that's one of the lessons that I've gleaned from my experience because, you know, when my daughter was going through her stuff, there wasn't a group that fit all of the diagnosis that she had. So right. I didn't connect with other parents. I could have gone maybe to an adoption support group, or I could have gone to maybe an autism support group, but, but she wasn't actually diagnosed until she was in high school with autism. Um, but when my kids were in high school and both of them were struggling with mental health, both of them had suicide attempts. Mm. I was finally able to get into a support group of mothers with teens that were struggling. And it was the, the best thing, such a relief to just go in and be able to say, this was the highlight of my week. This is the low light and be with other mothers who I felt safe being honest with because You, you'll get to the point where your kids are in high school or in junior high and you you feel like you show up at the school and you want to say, oh, yeah, my kid's the star soccer player or the valedictorian or in the band or what have you. I was not having any of that. Mm-hmm. And so you feel there's like a competitiveness of my kids not doing as well as yours. And you just don't feel comfortable talking about those things. So I wish that I would have been able to find support groups either online or in person earlier on. And I would encourage anybody going through tough things to find that support group. And I would be more than happy if people have kids with special needs or kids that are struggling with their mental health for people to reach out to me. And I'm happy to walk them through some some things and help them brainstorm about where they can find support. Yeah. And we'll have all of your your contact information in the show description. And I think if groups aren't your thing, I have found so much power in motherhood and just walking alongside people who are willing to be open and honest. We don't have to be going through the same thing. We don't have to be doing it the same way. Just doing it together. Absolutely. is huge. Like I literally was talking about that in reference to motherhood with my husband this morning, that when my best friend has two kids that are same age as my kids and they're all best friends. And this sounds terrible, but sometimes seeing her kids act up is just like, okay, good. Well, it's <laughs> not just mine. It's not like my kids aren't the only ones that overreact to everything, you know? And that just comes back to like, we were meant to do all of this stuff together, not the same, not at the same time, not the same way, but just together. And I think you have this story of kind of not putting yourself in those positions. And I think, you know, it sounds like you're like retrospectively, I wish I would have found that earlier. Yes, for sure. Because, you know, I worked from the time my kids were born basically, which is a, not a criticism of myself or anyone else. People, we do what we are filled by and working, being a working mom filled a different need for me, but I never was in some of those moms groups that you start out with your kids are born at the same time. And then I later on was a 
I founded a mops group, which was wonderful, but I was the leader. So I had to, you know, put on the show and right. look like I had it all together. And, and so I wish, yeah, I think absolutely finding that friend, finding that person or that group that can help walk through life. And I, I see that now and it's such a joy to walk through life with other people yes. and be able to talk about hard things. And when I tell you about my hard things, then you are more willing to tell me about I'm struggling with this or I have this feeling I don't like about myself and why am I feeling this way? You yeah. know, just processing life together. Yeah, I think sometimes we have to be willing to go first. And yes. it's scary. And sometimes like I've gone, quote unquote, gone first with the wrong people before and been like, oh, nope, yeah. this isn't it. But I think when you like we've both said, when you do find those people, like you may still have to continue to go first. And I think you're doing and exemplifying and walking in like the community and like lack of isolation that God intended us for. And sometimes you just have to be the one to make it. Well, and I feel like my sensor for when it's appropriate to go first has gotten better over time. Yes. I feel like anytime I feel a nudge to do something, I may sit on it for a day or two and trust that that's where God's leading me. But I feel like I've gotten a lot better at being aware of what direction I'm supposed to move in. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a huge blessing because it, it is. is scary to go first and it's scary to open up to the wrong people because you don't want to get burned. Right. Well, Valerie, this was an incredible conversation. I'm so thankful for you and for your story. People can get off script, I'm guessing, just wherever they get books, right? Wherever they get books. The ebook is only available on Amazon along with the paperback, but paperbacks are available everywhere else. Awesome. And we'll have links to all of your social in the show description so people can find and connect with you. Thank you for extending such like a gracious offer to help people walk through this because you do have You've just so much wisdom and so much that you've walked through that I think it's that's like that is to me what looks like Jesus is when you're like, okay, yeah, this is what I've walked through and this is what God has done. But like I want to walk through it with you as well. Well, thank you for having me. I I really just feel so much joy in life on this side of the journey and being able to use my story to help others. Amen. Thank you so much. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Crappy Christian Podcast. And hey, by the way, if you super loved it, can you go leave a five-star review wherever you're listening? That'd be awesome. All right, see you next week.